chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 is where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath a seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip there with us. If you'd like, I believe Mark 4 will be page 839 in those black hardbacks. Missed you all last week. Uh, glad to be back with you. I want to say thanks to Michelle for filling in and bringing an excellent word for us last week as we started off the chapter uh, number four in the Gospel of Mark. I was at a women's retreat, uh, which you heard correctly, so uh, a group of dozens of women invited me to come speak to them. It was a natural fit because I'm 26, I'm not married, and I know just about everything there is to know about women. Uh, And so we we had a good time. Uh, I did actually learn a lot uh, on the retreat. What I did learn is that women do retreats much better than men do. Uh, men do like camping stuff and have tents. And they brought in masseuses uh, and had massages. In fact, I had a massage between sessions on Saturday. And in fact, we've got a board meeting coming up tomorrow. If any board members are in here, I'm going to be uh, proposing that we bring in a masseuse. We've got a nice little window here between first and second service. I really think it increases the quality of preaching. Um, I enjoyed my time there with them, uh, enjoyed getting to know them, make some new friends, being encouraged by them. They kept asking, how old are you? And you have a church? This is like a real thing? And I'm like, yeah, I'm 26, I have a church. And like, is it middle schoolers? Is it, what is, <laughs> you'd be surprised. There are adults, like, we do have a lot of high schoolers, but there are adults and, and people much smarter than me and much wiser than me, much older than me, who love me and appreciate me as their pastor. Uh, and so even being there, uh, I always miss you guys, and I'm always glad to be back with you, uh, and happy to join you this morning. We'll be in Mark 4. We'll finish off the chapter. Michelle did a great job looking at the parable of the sower last week, and so you uh, have this parable. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a man sowing seed, and there are four types of responses to the word being preached. Uh, in one response, the enemy, an evil one, comes and snatches up, and there's no root. So, so they hear the word of the kingdom, but nothing at all takes place in their heart or in their mind. And another, the, the word starts to root, starts to take plant a little bit, and then you have tribulations or trials come. And this person, the moment they have to make a decision where they have to sacrifice for Christ, they're out. And, and all of a sudden the, the tree, the, the root is uh, stopped growing. And then the third root, the third soil you have, um, it gets planted a little bit as well, and then trials and tribulations come. Thorns and thistles um, and distractions come. You have the distractions, the deceitfulness of wealth. Everyday life gets in the way, they fall away as well. And then there's this last type of soil, the type of soil we want to be, um, who hear the word and take it, uh, allow it to take root in us and bear fruit in us 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. This morning, we'll keep reading, and Jesus is going to continue to teach in parables. Uh, he's going to continue to use the seed metaphor, and we're also going to get one of the, I think, most powerful stories in the Gospel of Mark. And so I'm excited to explore it with you this morning. So if you'll read with me, Mark chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 21. Mark 4, verse 21. And he said to them, Is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter the seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. 
And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out larger branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now what I want to do this morning is I want to work backwards through this passage. So you have four kind of sections here. The calming of the storm, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the seed growing, and the parable of the lamp under the basket. And I want to work backwards, uh, and I think it will take us into the heart of the kingdom. God's kingdom through Jesus, what he has come to do in our world, and then how it involves us. We'll start with the what of the kingdom, with Jesus in the storm. We'll move to the when of the kingdom with the mustard seed. We'll look at the how of the kingdom with the seed growing, and then we'll look at the now of the kingdom with the lamp under the basket. So the what, the when, the how, and the now. Now this story where Jesus calms the storm, um, there are a few things to notice about this story. It is reminiscent of a few other Old Testament stories that you might be familiar with. The most likely candidate here is the story of Jonah. You'll remember the story of Jonah. In the story of Jonah, people are sleeping. There's this big storm threatening people's lives. Jonah himself ends up sacrificing himself for the good of everybody on the boat. You and I as readers of Mark know that Jesus will end up sacrificing himself for the good of everyone in creation. Um, You see Jesus here sleeping. It's an interesting facet of the story. Perhaps he was just very, very tired from all the preaching and ministering and healing he had done. Or perhaps it says something about his confidence in the Lord. Uh, the calmness that he has even during the storm um, that he's able to sleep. Now, a storm in the first century in a boat that they would have been in would have been a life or death situation. Um, this is before GPSs. This is before metal. This is before all the technology that we have when we go out on cruise ships. And even then with all of that, right, we sometimes get stuck out there in the middle of Carnival. Anybody? You remember this? The, yeah. Think 2,000 years before this, stuck in a storm, this is life or death. Um, You're looking at like a 20-foot by maybe 13-foot sized boat made of wood. In this area in particular, it was known for these windstorms rising out of the blue uh, and creating very hostile situations where um, it was not uncommon for a boat to be ripped to shreds in the water and for bodies to wash ashore. Um, In the midst of all of this, the disciples are rightly freaking out and Jesus is taking a nap. He's sleeping. Proof, I think, that naps are holy. Uh, Working on a theory about that. I I had the uh, unfortunate or fortunate experience to be in a a situation similar to this that that made the story come alive for me a couple years ago. We were in Florida as a family taking a a family vacation, and my dad was a member of a boat club uh, where you pay a monthly fee and you're able to go to whatever marina uh, has these boats and check out a boat for the day and go and use it. So you don't own a boat, but you have access to boats all over the place. And so we decided we were going to go out one day to this marina, check out a boat, spend the day on the lake. 
And we drove about an hour and a half from where we were staying, the condo in Florida, and we got there, and they didn't have the boat that my dad wanted. Uh, there was a mistake in the paperwork and in the filing. Now, granted, they have hundreds of other boats, right? Any of which we could take out and go in the water and enjoy the day. But on principle, my dad was like, we are not doing this. This is not the boat we asked for. This is not the boat we were promised. And so we drive an hour and a half back to our condo, wasting an entire day, no boating, no getting on the water. A few days later, we decide we're going to try again. And so we take the hour and a half trip to the marina. The family is kind of holding their breath, right? Please don't waste another day. Please have this boat here for us. As we're driving over there, my mom is looking at her smartphone and realizing the weather report for that day is not very savory. What you should know about my mom is she hates boats with a passion. Uh, It was a very big compromise on her part for my dad to be able to join this boat club. Every time is convincing to get her on to a boat. And and she's looking at the weather, and she's now going, we're not getting on a boat today. There's no way we're going on a boat. Look at the weather. And the rest of the family, again, is like, we're not wasting another trip. I don't care if Hurricane is out there, okay? We're getting on a boat, and we're enjoying the boat. We're getting on the water. So we get there. We get out there. We get on the water. Things are fine. It's a little cloudy for a while. We end up going out quite a bit. And all of a sudden, we notice, uh, you're kind of slowly looking around, and there are no other boats out, which is your first, like, red flag, right? Like, why is no one else out in this weather? And and so um, there's a little GPS on the boat, and my dad's trying to get a bearing on where we are, and my mom is very much freaking out, and he's like, okay, we'll start heading back. And within, it seemed as if within two minutes, it was probably five minutes or so, the sky turns black. I mean, it's pitch black as the middle of the night, and you can't see anything. You can't see five feet in front of you, five feet behind you. And then the heavens just break open, and there's thunder, and there's rain, and it's cold, and it's big, and it's hard. It's the kind of rain that hurts when it hits you. And there are 10- and 15-foot swells just throwing the boat around like, like a rag. Uh, the GPS on the boat breaks so we're, we're kind of just sitting out there. In the midst of all of this, the scene is my dad's still at the wheel, trying to act like he has some semblance of control, right? Like, I've got this under control. This is, this is normal. My mom and my little brother and my little sister are in their back of the boat sobbing. <laughs> They've actually created a cocoon of life jackets. I don't know what the strategy was, but instead of wearing them, they were, I think, going to just float in this life jacket bubble. Uh, and they're sobbing, and, and it really, so I go back, and I'm, I'm praying with them, and, and we even, like, mention the story, and, and we were trying to wait out the storm, and it hit home, right, that in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the sea, if the water wants you, the water gets you. I mean, even with all of our technology, um, and I can't even imagine, right, being in the first century. This is a life-or-death situation uh, for the disciples. This is not just a story of a dangerous and exciting situation. Um, This is very much a possibility their bodies will all be washed up to shore on the next day. And the other thing to notice about this story, if you look uh, closely at the wording in verse 39, when Jesus does awake, um, they say, don't you care, we're about to die. He awakes, and then he rebukes the wind. And it says to the sea, peace, be still. He rebukes the wind. This is the same word Mark uses throughout the Gospel of Mark when he's talking about exorcisms. This is what Jesus does to demons in the Gospel of Mark. He rebukes them. In Greek, literally, it's choke. You choke out the demon out of a person. Jesus chokes the storm out of the situation. Um, There is this sense in the story that there's some kind of demonic activity behind the storm that Jesus and his disciples are experiencing. We're told other boats went out with them. We don't know whether they were caught in the storm or not. 
this was not an uncommon thing to think in the first century, whether we agree or don't agree, uh, to think that there were demonic or spiritual powers that controlled certain aspects of nature. I'm sure you've heard in, in earlier times people would pray to the God of rain, right? Or pray to the God of the sea because um, it was such a perilous thing uh, to, to go through. You could classify this story as an exorcism story. Jesus cast out, he chokes out, he rebukes the storm. He rebukes the storm. In a larger biblical context, this also finds uh, a, a home in the, the larger story of the scriptures, where the sea or the water is often pictured as a symbol of chaos or destruction. Um, the sea is often pictured as this anti-God force, uh, personified as that which brings chaos and destruction to the world. Again, all you need to think about is living in, on a shore where there's been a tsunami, Right to understand the kind of fear that the sea can invoke in people. And, and this is before the time of meteorology. Um, if you think about it, still today, we can control a lot of things about our world, but we can't control the, the sea, right? the weather. I mean, if, if a tsunami is coming, our best advice is to run. There's not a button we can push. right? If it's going to be there, it's going to destroy everything. The, the only hope you have is to not be there when it happens. And in the, the scriptures, there are all these promises that God is in control of the sea that God is battling back against the sea, and that God will one day conquer the sea, will one day um, get rid of it from his creation. At the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of the scriptures, there's this promise that in the new heavens and new earth there will be no more sea. And we wonder, that's kind of sad, because we like the sea, and we like to take walks on the beaches. This is probably a, a metaphorical way of speaking, right? This is probably God saying, in the new world he's creating, there'll be no tsunamis. There'll be no forces of nature that show up out of the blue that can destroy and that can bring chaos. What happens here in this story, when Jesus calms the storm, is a microcosm. It's a small, concrete picture of his larger purpose and ministry. Jesus has come to calm the storm of creation. He's come to take what has been enslaved by evil forces both human and spiritual, and to bring it back under God's rule. C.S. Lewis once said that at every moment, every square inch of the creation is claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by God. There's this kind of spiritual warfare going on. As Christians, we get so used to the way that the world is. So we're used to the way um, that the world functions with tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and diseases and parasites that we often forget um, that these are all, according to the scriptures, things that are here because of the fall. Uh, and, and sometimes I think it's to our detriment that we don't pay enough attention to the doctrine of the fall, to the idea of the fall. Creation as we see it right now is an ugly and vile and violent thing. Um, and, and this is one of the largest problems for people who sometimes have trouble believing in God or following God. Um, there's so much evil in the world. How do I, I can, how do I um, reconcile that with a good God? How do I follow such a God who would create a world like this? Um, moral evil, human beings are mean to each other. We kill each other. That's a little bit easier to solve with free will. Okay, God's gifted us with the abilities to make certain choices. Natural evil, though, like storms or tsunamis or, or some of these deadly parasites. There's one atheist who says parasites are the biggest problems to believing in a good God. If God created the world, and you look in it, and there are all these parasites. I mean, if you looked it up, there are some of these nasty, nasty ones that will ravage human beings, um, that will completely destroy us from the inside out. He says that's the biggest problem of evil. It's not that we kill each other. 
right? Because you can blame that on each other. It's the fact that even in the world as we exist, creation is set up violently and evilly. Scripture would say, though, that this is not how God created the world. Um, This is a result of the fall. Um, The world that we see right now, a world with storms and with chaos, is not the world God intended, and it's not the world God intends to reclaim, intends to redeem, intends to rescue. If you want to know what God's will is for the world, you should look at a couple places. You should look at creation before the fall. What's life like before sin and death enters into the world? You should look at the end story. What will the world be like after God's finished with his mission of rescue and redemption? In both of those scenarios, there is no sickness. There's no death. There's no decay. There's no pain. In both of those scenarios, there are no natural disasters. Genesis 3 says um, that the conflict between animals and people, pain and childbirth, the ground itself being stubborn and painful against us, all come as a result of the fall. If you look at God's trajectory, what he's doing in Christ, he's not coming and saying, oh, well, there are storms in the world. Jesus doesn't say, let's just ride out the storm. He says, this is not a part of God's creation, but I want it to be here, and he chokes it out and gets rid of it. What Jesus is doing here in this passage is he is um, demonstrating for us the kingdom, his mission, his goal. Jesus has arrived to reclaim the earth for God, for God's will to be here on earth as it is for happen. What Jesus does for this storm is a small example of what he wants and is going to do for all of creation. One day, no more storms. One day, no more pain. One day, no more chaos. One day, the world functioning the way God has intended it to be. I'm going to say it again so you can amen it. What Jesus does here for this storm is what he wants to do and will do one day for all of creation. Amen. 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 And it's also what he wants to and is doing for all of us in our individual lives, for the the evil and the powers and the self-destructive habits that we have in our lives. This is Jesus' goal and his mission, coming to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. Now, if that's true, we have questions. Because as we look around the world, 2,000 years after Jesus supposedly brought the kingdom, started it, we still see a lot of storms. There's still a lot of evil in the world. There's still a lot of messed up people. There's still a lot of problems in our own hearts. Which brings us to the parable of the mustard seed. The story before the the story of Jesus calming the storm. The wind of the kingdom. Jesus says, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a grain of mustard seed. Um, Very famously, very small seed. When sown in the earth. um, But yet it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus says the the kingdom is not what you would expect. And it wasn't what the early Jews were expecting for God's kingdom. They had this belief that God's kingdom would one day show up and all of the world would be transformed into what God had desired and intended for his creation. But they thought that it would be this one spectacular moment. This one big battle, Armageddon type. And all of a sudden, in the twinkling of an eye, everything would be changed. Jesus and his earliest followers said, though, that the kingdom is more like a plant that would slowly grow. It starts with a seed. It's here, but it's not yet fully grown. It starts in small places. It's inconspicuous. And it slowly, slowly, slowly grows. This is a warning here about looking down on things with small beginnings, like Jesus' ministry. It's a warning at us looking down at things with small beginnings. The kingdom for Jesus and for his earliest followers has started. It it was there. With his death and resurrection, they believed that it had invaded into their current world. 
Yet, though, they said it still had time to grow. It still had time to expand. It was here, but not yet here. If you were to ask people, has the world gotten better or gotten worse over time? I think you'd get lots of different answers. And I think you'd have lots of different reasons for those different answers. It'd be an interesting survey, I think, to, to do, uh, to take part in. I read an article recently um, that made the argument pretty convincingly that the world as we live in it right now is a much better place than it was 200, 250 years ago. Uh, even with all the war that we see on the news and even with the Ebola scares and all those types of things, looking back throughout some of the travesties of history and the wars and the plagues and all of those things um, with our technology and with our science. Um, and I think there's a, a, a kind of an argument to be made for that, that perhaps the world is quite a better place than it used to be. Maybe there is sort of progress. On the same time, in the news culture that we live in, which often highlights the bad, it's very understandable to, to think that the world is getting worse, right? In our own lifetimes, we might have seen certain trends where when we were a kid, it seemed like this was acceptable or not acceptable. And now as we've grown just in the last 30 years or 50 years, it seems like our nation or our globe or our communities are getting worse and worse. Here's the promise of the mustard seed, though. However you would describe the trajectory of the world, up or down, the promise is one of irresistible growth. The kingdom is here and will grow. It might not always look like what you think it should look like. It might be infinitely slower than you would ever expect. One of my favorite theologians once said, for all we know, we're still the early church. <coughs> I mean, can you imagine 50,000 years from now, people studying church history and we're in part of like the first phase? <laughs> look at them still figuring things out, right? For all we know, this is a long process. I mean, we, don't, we don't know these things, but we have faith and hope and the word of the <coughs> Lord and what we experience and see on a day-to-day basis. The kingdom is growing. It's irresistible. The imagery of the seed is significant. The kingdom is not like an army. The kingdom is not like a hero. It's a seed that gets sown. It's humble imagery, sowing and tilling and harvesting. It's lowly, it's vulnerable, it's subject to adversity, it's subject to delays, it's subject to loss. It's not instant, it's not universal, but it's irresistible. Its growth is guaranteed. Uh, And often in ways, again, I think that we don't expect. So if you think of Jesus' life, Jesus' life culminates, his kingdom mission culminates in his death. At the one moment where all hope looks lost is actually the moment where we're seconds away from the greatest kingdom act that we have seen as of yet. I think sometimes we might look in the wrong places when we look for the kingdom to expand in the world. We see Christians being martyred at higher rates than they've ever been martyred before, and we wonder, maybe this means the world's getting worse, right? What if, according to Jesus' trajectory, that's actually the way to the kingdom? What if the more we apparently lose, the more the seed grows? The early church fathers often said the, 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 the church is built on the, the blood of the martyrs, um, that what looks like loss to us and to the world is often victory, uh, is often the way the kingdom advances. The what of the kingdom, Jesus coming to calm the storm, the when, we're not sure. We're not sure how fast or how slow or what it will look like. All we're uh, assured of is that it will happen. We keep going back into the house, the parable of the seed growing. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. 
The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain and the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Um, this is a, a metaphor here from the agricultural world. And, and he's pointing out here that seeds grow mysteriously. Um, there's something underneath cause and effect that's happening with a seed. You have certain things to do, certain roles to play. You plant the seed, you water it, but it's up to God to bring day and night. It's up to some mysterious process under the soil for it to come forth in our own lives, in the lives of the world around us. This, again, is how the kingdom grows. We're not always aware of it. In fact, I would say, if we're honest, we're usually not aware of how the kingdom is growing in our own life. If we look back and see moments in our lives where God has grown us spiritually, um, it's probably moments when we least expected it or thought we were perhaps regressing in our faith that we find out later that this was actually a time of God molding us and using us. Our job is to faithfully plant seeds in our world, to serve other people, to love other people, to forgive other people, to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But we might not always see the fruit of it. Or we might see the fruit of it, but not recognize it. There's a mysterious divine process at work. And our job is to faithfully plant seeds in ourselves, in our own lives, in our own hearts. To pray, to worship together, to read the scriptures. We might not see the fruits of it right away. Or we again might see the fruits, but not notice the fruits. The kingdom works mysteriously. God grows us mysteriously. The how of the kingdom, this divine mysterious, powerful growth. And then as we move back to the beginning of our passage, a lamp under the basket, the now of the kingdom. What should we do now as disciples? He, he tells them, is the lamp bought to be put under a basket or under a bed or not on a stand? This real obvious kind of humorous example, right? He says, no one buys a light and then tries to hide it. He seems to be telling the disciples, even though I've been speaking in mysteries and speaking in parables, there will come a time when all of this will be made known. Um, right now, I'm, I'm pouring into you individually, but don't worry. The promise here, there will be a time when all of this is available. Uh, we're in that moment now, post-resurrection, post-crucifixion. We're in the moment where the light is spreading. We're going out. Um, I always have this fear of, when I, I, I see this passage, when I'm speaking somewhere and have a, a wireless mic on, usually the AV people will tell you, just keep the mic on and they'll mute you in the back, and then they'll unmute you when it's your time to speak. But there's this horrible fear that I have that they will unmute me while I'm singing and worship is going on, which no one wants. Uh, and it only has to happen to you once until you start lip singing worship. And so I, this is what I do even this weekend. I was lip singing. Because you just don't want your, your voice to come across, right? That's not what microphones are for. You don't take a microphone and you cover it up. He says, you don't take a light and you cover it up. Don't worry, the light's going out. But there's a warning to the promise. The promise, all of this is going to be taken out to the world. The warning, though, is you need to make sure you're listening now. You need to make sure that you know. Jesus, in verse 24, says something. He doesn't say often. He says, pay attention to what you hear. Pay careful, close attention to what you hear. And then he gives this real enigmatic statement. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And we hear this and we think, this does not sound very fair. Sounds like a harsh saying. Some have interpreted this to be Jesus, the proto-capitalist. Right? The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. 
The one who has more will be given. The one who doesn't have even what little he has will be taken away from him. What Jesus is getting at, I think here again you see a promise and a warning. The promise is, is if you grasp what I'm doing, if you grasp what Jesus is up to in the world, there's an ocean available to you to go further and deeper, to experience more and more. But if you don't, if you reject it, there's this hardening process that will happen in your life where even what you might have understood at one point will be taken away from you. I think there's this truth to life that we're all moving in one of two directions, spiritually. You're either, either moving toward Christ or you're moving away from Christ. There's no neutral. We like to pretend there's a neutral. I think though living in neutral is moving away from Christ. With every decision, with every day, we have the choice to, to, to dig in deeper or to move away further. And in a world of biblical illiteracy, where we're not familiar with our scriptures, in a world of nominal Christianity, where we have lots of people who say they're Christians but don't act like it, this warning, I think, is a stark one for us. This is why it is so important for us to press into Christ at all times. This is why times of worship like this are so important, to meet regularly. This is why times of community with friends where you can share and pray together are so important. This is why spiritual disciplines are so important. Jesus is saying here, if you'll press into me, if you'll be receptive to the Spirit, so when the the Holy Spirit tells you to make a move, to take a step, if you take that step, you're going to cultivate in your life the ability to be more receptive to the Spirit. You'll hear more from Him. It'll be easier to say yes again in the future. But unfortunately, the opposite is true. If the Spirit works in your heart, tells you to do something, and you deny it will be harder and harder for you to hear the Spirit's voice. It will be easier and easier for you to say no. There's this double-edged sword here um, as we follow Christ that that we need to be very, very careful um, that we are making the, the wisest use of our time, that we are recognizing who Jesus is, what he's come to do in the world, and, and the kind of roles that we might be able to play in it, and our small seeds that, that we can plant in the world around us and in our lives. And, and so as we come to the table this morning to remember and celebrate who Christ is, um, we, we sow a seed in our world. We sow a seed saying, I am his, and he is mine, and we sow a seed in our lives. And, and we don't necessarily always know how that seed will grow up. We don't necessarily know how long it will take or what it will look like when it produces fruit, but we trust in um, the one who sows the seed. We trust in the one who has died and risen again on our behalf. So in just a moment, uh, we'll invite all to come to the table and worship the Lord of the storm. We pray with us. Father, we love you. We thank you for